don't be afraid to bloody get out and talk about it. Don't be afraid to open up about it. Don't bottle it up. You don't have to put on this persona of, oh, I'm tough as nuts. And, you, know, you don't need to do that. We already know you're tough. Let's be tougher and open up. We are surrounded by incredibly strong people. Their journeys, like us all, are full of resilience, persistence, inner strength, and an ability to gain perspective to make the best of what is thrown our way. This is People Are Amazing, the podcast. My guest is a big, burly mechanical engineer from Western Australia with an enormous heart, a rocking beard, and his very impactful business, Walkabout Bros. He joins me today to support the very worthy cause that is Movember. At 36 years old and a hell of a lot of perspective on life, from losing his fiance to a drunk driver, losing his best mates to the Bali bombings less than a year later, to spending a bit of time incarcerated from making poor choices. He is a man who knows the importance of opening up, admitting you need help, allowing yourself to be vulnerable because she'll be right, isn't always going to be right. This one's for every lost man who ever felt the need to work out their problems on their own, and with booze. This is Gray's story. Hey, buddy. Hey, going? Yeah, not bad. How are you? No, not too wow, bad. Check it's out that beard. <laughs> yeah, I've actually I got to trim it up shortly because I got um obviously I'm heading down uh, well down south next month uh, so to some really cold climates. So I've I've got to I've got to shave it up. So. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for joining the podcast today. Yeah, it's been, I think, on the back of Movember this month. Yeah. I think it was really yeah. a great timing for us to connect. I think hearing the story yeah. that you've gone through um, and you've lived such a full life, I think the roller coaster of emotions that you've gone through as well must have been hell. So, how yeah. about you kick us off? Tell us your name, you know, where you're from, childhood, you know, give me a bit of context around where you grew up. Yeah, so easy. Uh, well, yeah, my name's Graham Murphy. Um, 36 years of age. I'm a mechanical engineer for a company called Primero. Um, I've been with that company for a couple of years now, just doing my bits and pieces. Uh, but yeah, <clears throat> I was born uh, in rural WA, um, a place called Margaret River. Um, basically raised on a dairy farm right up until I was about 17. Um, yeah, just basically lived the dream down south, like, you know, surfing. Helping, helping dad out on the farm quite a bit. Um, just doing whatever sort of normal kid did in that kind of town and that kind of community. Um, I think the surfing was a bit of a, a bit of a uniter between the towns as well. Cause obviously there's Dunsborough and Margaret river and Augusta and Bustleton and you know, all the boys would all catch up, go surfing. And we would call it manies, do manies. That was something that we used to do through the center of Margs on the push bikes. Um, just, just day-to-day shenanigans as a young fella growing up in that town. Yeah, I, I, oh, it's, I don't know, I don't know if you know where Margaret River is, but yeah, it's just, it's like one of those ideal little country towns. Like, obviously it's a tourist attraction, but you know, when it's off season, it's, it's, yeah, it's just perfect. So. Sounds idyllic. Sounds pretty amazing actually. So you grew up on a yeah. dairy farm. Yeah, yeah, we, so my dad, uh, my dad's Irish, he, he passed away last year, unfortunately, so he was pretty much, how do you put him, so they, they call him 10 Pound Poms, dad and my uncle came over here in uh, 62, 63, um, coming from Belfast especially, they were a bit sort of trying to get away from the situation that was happening there at the time, uh, and they came to Australia, but unfortunately, I think everyone's aware of the draft during the sixties and in Vietnam. And unfortunately dad and uncle Bruce got drafted. They thought it was the immigration line for one, um, but it wasn't, it was the draft line for the, uh, the AIF, the Australian infantry force. And uh, they were sent to Darwin, spent six months in Darwin. And then they pretty much spent a year in Vietnam um, serving Australia. But they, as dad always said, he goes, I've got my visa papers. I've got my, I've got my citizenship. So I was pretty happy with that. Um, And then, yeah, he spent, he didn't leave. He didn't leave the army at that point. He stayed in the army um, just because it was a better career option. Uh, ended up did another thirteen years in the forces, and then 
on his retirement, he's like, I'm buying a farm. So he bought the property down in, in Margs um, just to, you know, push on. So, and then we did have sheep. I remember when I was a young fellow, we did have sheep for a little while, but dad's not a very patient man. And anyone that's a sheep farmer would understand where we're coming from with this. It's, <laughs> you need a lot of patience. Um, dad wasn't a very patient bloke. So he was like, he just got rid of the sheep and went to dairy um, and ended up being pretty good with that, like pretty successful in the region with dairy. So, um, mm. yeah. so he was, he was, I mean, typical Irishman, you know, jovial, always cheeky, um, always pulling pranks, you know, but he was also a really loving father too. Like a lot of my siblings, you know, they're like, oh, he was lemon on a cut finger, but fair. Um, and I mean, I was the baby out of the family, so I didn't get to see <laughs> most of the stuff that my older siblings got up to, but I'd imagine, you know, like dad was pretty fair with the whole situation. He, he wanted the best for us, um, but he also wanted us to learn from our mistakes. So he was always, um, you know, if we stuffed up, if we screwed up, he just be like, right, well, what are you going to learn from this? What are you going to do to make it better? And he'd sort of put the ball back in your court. And I, I found that was, that was pretty effective. And I think that's what helped me out later on down in life, obviously. Um, just having that, right, well, this has happened now, so what do I need to do to push forward? Um, so, yeah, that's a lot of that sort of mentality was from my dad. Um, yeah. Like, well, I'm sorry to hear about him passing, so my condolences. Yeah, no, cheers for that. Yeah, it was, it was I mean, it was, it was like it was quick. So, you know, he, um, I mean, he didn't suffer. He didn't, you know, it was, he was doing what he loved to, like obviously on the farm. And I was away at the time, so I couldn't get back home um, in time to lay, it to, uh, lay him to rest. But, yeah, I mean, we had our time of grief. And now it's a typical Irish tradition is to, you know, celebrate life and, and move forward. So, um, yeah, we, we definitely did some celebrations, that's for sure. <laughs> it's really nice that you've kept some of the traditions going, especially now I'm living yeah. in Australia and the next generation as well. So it's good that you've kept some of the yeah. Irish tradition. Um, okay. Yeah. So... We talk about Movember this month um, with men's mm -hmm. mental health. And I know that this discussion today is really for you to share your story on how yep. talking things out, seeing people and reaching out to people is going to help, especially for men. Uh, and mm -hmm. now that I've got a bit of a context of you know, your, your, your father's upbringing, being in the army and serving, gives me an idea as to why you are so uh, passionate about helping that community more so in, in yep. overcoming some of the trauma that they would have experienced. So tell yep. me your story. What happened to you that kind of led you to this point? So basically, um, yeah, like, I mean, when I was, when I was 17, I graduated uh, from high school. Um, and uh, me and my high school sweetheart, Carolyn Thompson, um, we met each other like when we were 12, started dating when we were 15. You know, we were like the, the high school couple all the way through to graduation. and pretty much at that point um i had two dad gave me two choices he said you know you either go to university or you go into the army and i'm, I'm thinking well you know I, I don't want to spend another four years at school like <laughs> I, was, I just spent 12 years of schools over it. I, was, I just wanted to go do something for myself and i figured you know what the army would be um a good option because not only would it teach me like a trade skill it could also teach me to you know grow up and and you know, take a bit of responsibility. And so I went, I went to, my dad took me up to an orientation day, um, had a chat with a recruiter and, you know, we went through the, went through the process. Um, obviously being 17, I needed my parents' permission to, uh, to do so. Um, you know, dad was pretty quick with the pen, but mum, I think mum was sort of sitting there for a couple of weeks, like, oh, like freaking out in the sense, but she finally signed it, realising that um, the trade opportunities within the Defence Force were, you know, really good. Um, so yeah, we I did the application, and then obviously my partner Carolyn, um, she was going. She wanted to be a nurse. Um, so the best opportunity we had was to um, move to New South Wales. Obviously, where your training is commenced, uh, it's well your basic training started in Kapuka, Wagga Wagga. Um, you do your basic training there, and then you get passed out, and then you go to your employment training. Um, so Carolyn's idea was to get a a slot at a um, a nursing school in Sydney, so South Sydney Maroubra. And so while I was doing my basic training, she'd start her studies um, in Maroubra. So we had a pretty good plan. We were pretty much set in concrete. And um, our life started pretty much that 
that day. Like Carolyn, she was she was a little bit older than me. She turned 18 before I did. Um, so, you know, she did all the driving from Perth across another ball straight to Sydney. So, yeah, that was, you know, I was kind of, I had my license, but I was just like, ah, you do all the driving, I'm chilling out. And, you know, we had little adventures along the way. It was great. Like she was pretty much my right arm, um, you know, at, at this stage in her life. And we were going to get married and we're going to have a massive family and everything. But, you know, unfortunately, it never got to, it never got to that point. Um, so, uh, 2001, um, just just after pass out uh, from Kapuka, um, we obviously myself and a few mates that had done the training decided to celebrate in a place called Holsworthy, New South Wales. Um, went up to a mate's property to have a few drinks and celebrate and carry on. And uh, Carolyn's situation was she had work the next day, so she said, "Look, I'll take you up. I'll have a couple of drinks, and then I'll." I've got to head home and I'll pick you up tomorrow afternoon. And I was like, yep, yeah, it was usual, usual sort of standard practice anyway. Um, so she left, it was about 11 o'clock. She left and I stayed and carried on drinking. Um, it wasn't until the next morning and uh, I checked my phone and I, was, I had a whole bunch of text messages and missed calls from both my mum and my dad and, and Carolyn's parents. And there was a, a number from the police as well. And so I contacted my mum first. I said, hey, what's up? And, they, and she said, you need to contact the police. Um, Carolyn passed away last night. She was killed in a drink driving accident. Oh, my God. Now, I mean, I, I don't, I, I was numb when I heard that. Uh, I was sort of, I remember sitting there just like, you know, first, like I hung up the phone and I tried calling Carolyn's phone a few times. I thought maybe it's a mistake. Maybe something's not something's not right. Um, didn't get an answer. And then I rang the police. Um, obviously that was the next step around the police. But at that time, my mates were, you know, they were getting ready to move me um, ASAP as soon as we got word. And I rang the police, police answered the phone. I was chatting to the, the, the constable that was inspect. Well, he was investigating the crash at the time. Uh, he said that Carolyn was driving, so there was a set of lights. It was about two minutes away from the apartment that we were living in at the time. Uh, there's an intersection. And so Carolyn had green lights. The other driver ran the red lights and, and ploughed into the car, doing about 70 kilometres an hour, just instant wipeout. Um, the fella that hit Carolyn was actually coming from, a, from his son's 21st birthday. Uh, both killed on impact. No, no one survived it. Um, so, you know, there was two, two losses that night um, because of someone's, you know, decision to, uh, to get behind the wheel of a car and drive it uh, while intoxicated. So, you know, obviously the, the situation with all that afterwards, you know, like all the, all my stuff with the military that went out the window, I was deemed, you know, medically unfit to, to proceed with, employment training um got a big red cross and then you know that was a double whammy for me right there it was like i've just i've lost my partner i've lost my career what am i going to do i just i just completely fell into a into a black hole i guess you could say um dad and one of my mates they had to fly to sydney to to help me obviously pack up everything most of my most of my mates had gone to their employment training at that point so you know they couldn't help me um packing up that apartment was that would be, unless you've lost someone, it's hard to explain. It's, you, it, you just feel like you're packing it all the way and, and you just, you just feel like you're forgetting them. And there was a lot of things that I held onto um, during that time. And uh, like I held onto a lot of things for a few years after that, just, just little items, little trinkets or bits and pieces that she used to use. Like I just held onto them, kept them in a box, um, you know, and, but I just remember, uh, one afternoon, like we were packing a whole bunch of stuff up. We hadn't even touched the lounge room as yet. And me and Kaz used to, there was this one thing that Carolyn used to do. She'd get out the shower and she'd throw a wet towel over the, over the couch. And we just, it used to drive me insane. So we'd bust out, we'd have like little arguments about this towel over the couch and, you know, it, there'd be words exchanged and you'd be like, ah, oh, you know, just driving yourself insane. And then, when I saw that towel on the couch, that I just lost it. I just completely broke down. It was just, 
you know, that was the last thing that she touched. It was the last thing she did. And, and, you know, I just, I felt absolutely gutted. I just, I couldn't, I, I just remember sitting on the balcony. I couldn't move. Dad and my mate were just moving stuff out of the house. I just, I couldn't do anything. Um, and that, that's when it hit, like, you know, I'm like, I'm lost. I'm completely lost. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what to do. For the first time in my situation, um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have an answer for it. I didn't have that um, that cocky sureness of like, yeah, you know, like whatever I set my mind to, I can achieve it. At that point, I was like, I'm done. It's over for me. And I just, I just gave up. Honestly, just gave up. Um, and that, that was like when I think about it now, it's it's pretty much just like when you're a young fella and, and something like that happens to you, you, your brain's not at its full capacity. You're not at your full maturity. So your brain's not going to process things the way they should be processed. They're just, it's like a, uh, what do my mates say? He goes, it's like a, um, uh, like a flare, you know, like a party flare, you like the party flare up and all the, everything's just going everywhere. It's like that. It, that's what my head felt like. Everything was just sparkles going all over the shop. Um, no direction, no purpose, and, and it just really, really muddled me up. Um, and then, yeah, eventually uh, got to the point where we drove back to Western Australia. You know, Dad was trying to talk to me on the trip back home, you know, trying to, you know, trying to help me make sense of things. And he just, he did a lot of talking. Um, a lot of it, I just, I just drained out. And I think at one point I was like, can you just, you know, shut the fuck up for five, I need to sleep. Um, I just didn't want to hear it. Um, and then obviously getting back home to Margaret river, you know, everyone being a small town, everyone wants to know what happened, what's going on, where's Carolyn, what's this. And it just got too, it just got too overwhelming. I ended up just literally locking myself away on the farm. I stayed on the farm. Um, I stopped helping dad, uh, going in and out of town. I stopped helping on the farm entirely. I just literally locked myself in the granny flat and that was it. Um, just drank myself into stupids every night. Uh, that was that was probably the worst thing I could have done in that sense. Just like sitting there, just drinking, drinking, drinking. Um, Given that experience, you know, mum forced you to grow up. So yeah, quickly. yeah, it's yeah. It was literally at that point. It was like instead of growing up, I'm getting pulled up. You know, I'm getting a very rough lesson in in you know loss in that sense. And what didn't help was uh, a lot of my mates that did come out and this is something that we're focusing on quite a bit now is obviously alcohol is not the, uh, the answer. And, uh, my mates who, you know, completely innocent, not knowing they're just mates being mates and they'd get a carton of beer and they'd come out and we'd sit out on the porch and we'd be, just be drinking. They'd be drinking. I'd be just smashing back the beers, like just not a breath. As soon as I finished one, picking another one up, cracking it. Um, it's just the Australian pretty much. culture as well, isn't it? It's how, how guys bond, yeah. how they yeah. feel like they're there for yeah. each other. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty much how the blokes deal with you know with loss or bad news or something something's happened or they've worked hard. You know, oh yeah, let's have a beer, let's crack a beer and celebrate or honour or whatever. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but when it starts getting excessive, and if you've got uh, like like myself, I was I was really depressed. I was really out of the scene, and alcohol was my escape tool. Um, but unfortunately, you know, they're encouraging that that drinking mentality, and and that led to you know another problem down the track. Obviously, but I think it, I mean it got to a point with my mates. Um, they were just like, look, you need to you need to get the hell out of here, man. We need to do something. Um, and this was eight months after the accident, so not not even a year. And so my mate, Alex, he booked a trip to Bali, uh, October 10th, 2002. And, you know, he said, look, we're going to Bali. We're doing a surf trip. You know, you're keen. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. Like, yeah, I want to go, I want to go somewhere. I want to get out. And so, yeah, we went to Bali. We, we landed in Bali October 10th and, you know, set up and then we went for a bit of a surf and then October 11th, I mean, October 10th that night, we kind of, hit the bin tanks pretty hard. So, you know, as, as you do, and I, I kind of felt, I felt a little bit better because I was in an area 
where no one knew me. And I was with my mates who we weren't talking about it. We were just sort of doing what we did. And, and for a fleeting second there, I felt like I actually felt normal again. And then, yeah, October 11th was a bit of a recovery day. And, you know, I went for a surf, went, walked around Cooter and Samanyak and um, went out again that night and woke up the next morning and I was feeling a bit dusty and, you know, the boys wanted to go for surf. So I'm going to stay in the hotel and chill out. And um, they all took off for the day and then they came back late that afternoon and they said, hey, let's, uh, we've got a plan. We're going to go out tonight. We're going to head to the Sari Club, uh, you know, down the road. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm keen, like, but I'm only having a couple of drinks, like, because <laughs> I'm, I'm just hungover, I'm just really sore, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just going to have a couple of drinks and then we'll call it even. Um, so, yeah, that night we, we went down to the Sari Club and uh, my mate Jimmy and myself, we, we were sort of, because we were still pretty seedy, so we kind of slowly walked to the Sari Club, like two beers and we're out type thing. And... Um, I remember getting to the Sarah Club, we, we bumped into a couple of girls that we were speaking to the night before and they were introducing us to a couple of locals that knew some surf spots, so we will chatting with them for a bit. And then about 8.30, um, I called Final Drinks, so I was like, look, I'm out, I'll see you later. And then Jimmy's like, yep, I'm coming with you, and off we, off we headed. Um, we headed back to the hotel, uh, went back up to our rooms, and I literally, I just jumped on the bed and I was out like a light. And then, I don't know how long it was, afterwards but i just i remember waking like just heard this deafening like crack and then windows shattering and just there's no powers out and i was like what the hell and like in bali especially like there's always gas bottles blowing up at the back of restaurants or shops so it's pretty common to hear you know explosions um so i thought at first i thought maybe the gas bottle behind the hotels <laughs> exploded and uh you know i'm sort of getting my thoughts together and, and Jimmy's kicked the door open on me room and he's like get up get up there's you know there's been a an explosion and I said yeah I know and he's like it's at the Sari Club and I went I, I remember going what and he said it's at it's at the Sari Club and I, I was like oh shit so we like we got up we ran down and we had the you know the Nokia bricks the Nokia the old Nokia yeah phones that was our torch there was no power in the hotel that power had cut out um so it's pitch black we're running down because the elevators didn't work. We're running down the stairs and we're using the phones to see where we're going. We got to the foyer and that's when we started seeing people running into the foyer. They're, like, they're cut up, they're, they're bleeding. And uh, I started getting that real Eerie bad off. feeling of like, this is, this is bigger than what it, it is. Not a gas bottle. There wasn't a gas. Yeah. Like usually, I mean, Usually when it's a gas bottle, like you just see everyone have a bit of a chuckle and, you know, you carry on. But this is something well bigger. And, yeah, we we ran out. Jimmy, like, ran ahead of me. Um, so I lost Jimmy in the crowd at one point. Um, by the time I got to where the Sarah Club used to be, it, at that point it was all getting sectioned off by the police. Um, the fire department was just showing up at that point. But there was just carnage from one end of the street to the other um, bits and pieces. There was, you know, some people that were still moving, but they're in their last parts of life. If that's probably the best way to explain it. They were, you know, the, the body was shutting down, but the brain was still trying to keep them going. And, and you just saw that everywhere on that street that night. And I remember, uh, one of the girls that we did bump into um, the night before, she come around with another friend. She had her head wrapped in a, in a shirt, so she lost a big chunk here off her face. Um, they, the lights were on. No one was home. You know, I'm trying to ask where the boys you – know, I was like, where, where are the boys? Where are the boys? And she's just – she's looking at me, but she's looking through me. She's not, she's not with it. End up, we pulled them aside, and I remember sitting with them and just trying to help Sarah – as best I could, trying to keep her calm. I was trying to get an ambulance to come, but they, you know, all the everyone was just in a mad rush. It was just crazy. Um, two of the locals that were there, they, you know, they made her as comfortable as possible. They put like a sheet over and just put her head on a pillow, and we just kept her there for as long as we could. Um, Jimmy 
saw Jimmy run past, so I chased after Jimmy and I said, like, where are the boys, man? He's like, I don't know. I'm going to run around the other side, see if they're on the other side of the crowd. And, yeah, again, something was just telling me that they, you know, they didn't make it. Uh, Alex was, so Alex was a paramedic. Um, he, was a, he was a medic for ERT, emergency response team, uh, mining, like mining ERT. And knowing Alex, um, you know, he would have, as soon as that happened, he would have been the first one to run out to go help. That was that was his type of nature. He was always that fellow that helped someone out that was hurt. So Alex would have ran out, and the, the other, you know, the other four would have ran out after Alex to, you know, help Alex out. So uh, finding out a couple of days later that it was two explosions. Um, there was a smaller explosion which drew everyone out, and then the bigger one was what wiped everyone out. So, you know, I didn't hear. We didn't hear the first explosion. Um, we just. We just saw the herd and saw the outcome of the second one and that's what wiped a lot of people out. So, you know, just having that um, just having that thought of like knowing Alex and the boys were outside put, yeah, trying to help people. I know they would have been trying to help people. Um, you know, that, that gives me a bit of comfort knowing that he was doing his best. Um, they were all doing their best to, to help out. But, um, you know, again, uh, that was because of a choice. Someone chose to go against that. Someone chose to hurt those people and, you know, and it's, it ended up killing a lot of Australians. It's, yeah. So that one night from the Bali bombings, you ended up losing five of your best mates. Five of my best mates gone just like that. Um, not even, not even a, an explanation, not even like, you know, there was no reason why that should have happened. You know, like no one in that area was there causing trouble. No one in that area was, everyone was just there for holidays. You know, everyone was there enjoying their time. My mates were there to help me out, you know, and I was there with my mates and, you know, it's a, it's a place of peace, Bali. Like you go there, you relax, you know, surf trips, drinking trips, whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's a great place to be, but that just put a, that really put a permanent stain on Bali for, and you know, it'll, it'll be remembered throughout time. Um, not in a good way. It's a real shame. It's terrible. So you've had, um, in the space of what, 18 months, you had just gone through yeah. losing your fiance. Yeah. Yeah. Bali bombings, losing five mates. How did you mm -hmm. cope after that? Uh, well, again, um, Turned to alcohol. I hit the alcohol hard, uh, probably harder than I did before. Just it was the only way I could I could escape that that pain. Um, I know with uh, Jimmy and myself. I mean, we were stuck in Bali for like a week and a half after the incident. We couldn't get a flight home. We we're actually staying at one of the locals' places in Seminyak. Um, he actually set us up a room, and we were staying there. We we're trying to organise how to get home. Um, obviously we had family trying to contact us too, but back then there was, you know, there wasn't that international thing with your phone. You couldn't, you know, we had to go find a landline. They were fully booked out. So that, all that tension, all that, that stuff was building up. And my, my brain of that, like, again, it just fizzled out. It just went into that sparkle mode and just, it was done. Um, you know, and I'd find myself sitting up, like not sleeping and I'm just, I'd, go down the road and buy a carton of bintang and just drink the bintang just non-stop um landed in perth uh dad again dad picked me up in the airport took me back home and again same scenario everyone wanted to know what had happened everyone wanted to wanted the info every, you know and, it, and you just like i don't want to deal with this and i just closed off again went back to the to the granny flat and just off i went just started drinking um and didn't stop you know, it got to the point where so mum and dad, they wanted me to go get help. Um, ended up driving me up to Perth where I spent a couple of, couple of nights in a, like an outpatient care, like a mental care facility. Yeah. Um, obviously trying to fight an addiction. And at the time I didn't think I had an addiction. I just, I was like, I drink, 
I'm drinking. It's not an addiction. I was just, in, I was just denying that factor. Um, just constantly having people telling me I've got an addiction and me just getting angry. Like I, maybe subconsciously I knew, but on the outside I'm just like, no, nah, I'm fine. It's all good. Just leave me, you know, just leave me alone. I was angry with mum and dad for putting me into that scenario too. So I ended up pulling the pen and I left. I, I stayed in Perth. Just real, like a real rough, probably three, four years of just sleeping on couches, not knowing where I'm going to work and what I'm going to do. You know, just completely lost. No, no, like, uh, nowhere to turn, I guess you could say. I couldn't go left, I couldn't go right, couldn't go forward, couldn't go back. I was just stuck in that spot. But that was um, you, wasn't it? Because your family was there, they wanted to help. You just didn't know how to reach out for help. Yeah, it, I mean, the, yeah, the help was there and, and the, the support was there, but I, I was just, I was like, nah. You know, my brain was just like, I don't need help. I can do this. I'm a bloke. I can take care of myself. And, you know, I don't need anyone in my life type thing. And that was the worst thing I could have done. I cut ties with everyone, especially Jimmy, who was the other survivor of that incident. You know, he, like, to this day, like, we still we still talk. We're still mates. But when we, when we discuss what happened, he's like, man, I needed you. You needed me. Why Why did you leave me? You know, like, why did, why did I? Why'd you leave me by myself? And and now I can answer that, but at the time I, I couldn't. I was like, you know, just just fuck off, just leave me alone. You don't know what I'm going through. And he was the best person, you know, to know what I was going through. So yeah, it was pretty. It was it was silly, but I think at the same time, like I said, the, the brain doesn't work. Things don't work the way people think they work. Yeah. You know, you have someone, I mean, I hear it all the time. Oh, if I lost someone, I'd, I'd probably crumble and die. And, and you're like, okay, well, what makes you think that? You know, like what, what's your process thought on that? Because I've seen people where they've lost someone, they don't crumble and die. They, they push forward so hard that they get to a point where they, they stop and they reflect and they go, right, you know, okay, so... My, my ex, my partner wouldn't want me doing this if, if she was still here today. So I need to keep pushing forward. It's people like that that I started noticing just recently. Like this, There is a lot of people like that. But then there's that other part, the other people like myself who just hit that brick wall and your brain just doesn't want to play the game. And it goes, you know, obviously you go to depression, PTSD, anxiety, like the whole lot. And it just, it just spreads out. It's, it's, it's a crazy... Thing. But so much of it is perspective as well, isn't it? Because now you're, you know, at 36, you're reflecting back on something that took place 15 odd years ago. And mm. you know, you've got life experience, you've spoken to other people, or you've learned to overcome your PTSD of yeah. both issues. And now you can say, look, you know, I should have done this, I shouldn't, I should have done that, I should have been more yeah. proactive in helping myself and, and getting help. But when you're only 20, what do you know? Right, the yeah, exactly. There, so it's not even just the brain development; it's you just don't know what you yep. don't know, and there's the ego exactly. as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I was I was a pretty I was pretty sure of myself when I was a kid. Like you know, whatever I set out to do, I achieved, and you know, I had this had this real sort of cocky attitude. You know, like I'm ten foot high, bulletproof, which which most young fellas are. Um, mine was just a little bit more heightened because. You know, I had a lot of people that just encouraged that attitude. But again, upon going through what happened to me and then eventually learning about myself and, and obviously I learned about myself by traveling. I figured I, I can't lock myself. I need, to, I need to get out. I need to travel. I need to start getting some perspective, start getting some, some ideas outside of the circles that I'm in. And what, uh, what spun me out so... It was, it was just a simple conversation with this old fella and, and this is in New York. I was in, I landed in New York city, uh, 2010, um, late 2009, early 2010 and just walking around, checking stuff out, just sat down, had a conversation with this old fella and he, it got onto, it got onto the subject of what had happened and, and he was like, Oh, that's terrible. I was like, yeah. And, and he uh, getting, it was really, I've never done it. Like I've, I've, I've never, 
done it before, but I was just literally just pouring everything out of this old fella and he's listening and he's yeah, well, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. And he said, but do you think it's because your mates and your parents encouraged you to not fail? And it, and it kind of, it was like a, like a click in the back of the head. Yeah. When I was a kid, like dad would always say, you know, it's, it's good to fail, but don't fail. And that just got ingrained into me so much. And I was so, I was so scared of failing. I just, I put on this, I started creating this cocky persona and then it ended up whenever I succeeded, I was just like, it, it just made you bigger type thing. And, and that was one of my downfalls. I was so sure of myself and I was so cocky of myself when, when that devastating thing happened and I didn't have a left or a right or a forward or a back anymore. I'm like, Oh, hang on. Now I'm in unknown territory. Oh. Now my brain doesn't know what to do. What am I? Oh no. What's going to happen? And the brain just goes, you know what? Night mate. And it just flicks off. Yeah. You know, it gets, gets to a point where it just doesn't cope. And that was just from talking with that old fella. Like, I mean, and that's when I started realizing, like, okay, there was a lot of things that were given to me. You know, there was, there was a lot of chances to talk about what happened. There was a lot of chances to deal with what happened. I could have spoken to Jimmy. I could have spoken to like so many people that could have put me, you know, could have helped me get back to where I needed to be, but I chose not to and needed to go through that journey to get to where I am today to obviously learn that situation. But it's to be honest with you. And like, as I said to you the other day, like if it wasn't for where I was incarcerated for four and a half months, I probably wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have had that chance to, to move forward. So what happened there? You were in the States for a little bit and yeah. you landed in jail. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was basically, um, so my dad and myself, we used to, we used to build Harleys together. I'm like, I'm a massive Harley enthusiast. I love my Harley Davidsons. Um, and dad and myself used to rebuild them, fix them, you know, restore them. And that was, that was always a, a fun project with my dad. And while I was in Kansas, a place called Clyde, Kansas, which is literally Bibles and cornfields. It's that's it in Kansas, like Clyde. Um, I was, uh, I was working in a, like a farm region, like working on one of these farms. And, uh, this, this fella had like an old, uh, 1972 Harley Springer. It was a really nice bike, but it was all still in pieces. I offered to buy it. He said, well, look, you know, instead of paying your wages, you just pay the bike off and then it's yours. So it was like happy days, got it transferred from the US back to Australia. And, you know, by the time it arrived in Australia, and I think it was about three months after that, I, I arrived back in Australia and that was the first thing me and my dad did. We started putting the bike back together. And that was, so by early 2011, we were pretty much at like 80% of the bike being put back together, but we couldn't locate any parts. Um, we'll start to, we'll ring up like dealerships across, across the country and then the U S and they're just like, no, nah, you'd have to get it made up. And it's like, that's, that's 10 times more expensive and we're getting desperate. And then one of my mates who rides for a, a motorcycle chapter here in Western Australia, um, just, I knew him since I was five. So we'd catch up and have beers and stuff every so often. And I just saw, well, he's probably the best bloke to talk to being in the situation that he's in there's bound to be someone in that group that can help us out and they did um i spoke to my mate i had a chat with him i explained the scenario and he said look i can get those parts for you give me a couple of weeks i'll, I'll sort you out and, th and that's what he did he got those parts i drove down to the clubhouse and picked up those parts drove back to the farm dad was pretty excited i was excited boom we you know off we went we went hammer and tongs and we you know put this bike back together and you know, it was, it was, it, it was a success. I was happy. He was happy. You know, everyone was like, we remember the night we finished it, we took it out for a ride and then we're like drinking beers with all the boys, like, you know, having a laugh. And it was a great feeling because it was the third time we'd done something together like this. Happy days, you know, pretty much kept it. But then 2011, late 2011, I had some um, uh, financial situations I needed to cover. And I had to, I had two choices. It was either, go into debt or sell the bike and use the bike to pay off that financial situation. So that's what I did. I took the bike down to a dealership and they checked it out. And here in Western Australia, there's a stolen parts registry 
uh, like stolen motorcycles and classics and all that kind of stuff. So when they did a scan on the bike, there was 58 parts on that bike that were registered as stolen, uh, ranging from like carby covers to pipes, springs. You know, there was a whole bunch of stuff on this database that was literally stolen. They've contacted the police and 40 minutes later, the police rocked up and, you know, they've taken the bike, they've confiscated the bike. That's gone down to the laydown yard, they call it, to be inspected. Um, they've stripped the bikes to so all that work that me and my dad did. They just stripped it clean because they needed to get those parts. Taken to the police station, I was questioned and they're like, we know you didn't steal those parts, but where did you get them from? And I said nothing. I, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because the ramifications of that, if I said, oh, I got it from so-and-so, from so-and-so club, I mean, whether or not I went to prison, I'd, I'd just be constantly looking over my shoulder the whole time. And I didn't, uh, as they say, I didn't snitch, <laughs> as they say. That led me to go to court and then I was sentenced. And the judge, he just threw the book at me. Mm. And he said, right, this, I've, I've had enough of this. Uh, you know, Mr. Murphy, if you don't give us the names today, you're going inside. You don't have a choice. I hope you brought your toothbrush. And I'm just like, I'm not giving you the names. And then, boom, I was sentenced to uh, four and a half months uh, jail. Did the judge um, give us an example? Yeah, because at that point, uh, here in Western Australia and Queensland, they had the uh, what they call the Affiliate Act. So anyone that they deemed affiliated with motorcycle chapters, they were either incarcerated for 40 days or uh, sentenced, you know, based on whatever thing they were going through at the time. So I, I dare say I was used as, as an example. But at the same time, I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not putting my family in jeopardy. I'm not, as much as the police were like, oh, we'll, we'll protect them. You're just like, I don't think you can protect them 24 seven. Yeah. And I'm not putting my family and my friends at risk because I've, I've done something wrong in, in hindsight, like hindsight's a beautiful bloody thing. Hindsight is I shouldn't have bought, I, you know, as much as I was really happy, had them parts, I shouldn't have bought it. I should have known better. You know, I still I was still doing the wrong thing by by buying those stolen parts. Whether I knew or not, it doesn't matter. You're still breaking the law, and that was that was something that was always ingrained in my head at that point. And people like, oh well, you know, you could have got away with it. It's like, yeah, but I still broke the law. And there's no there's no easy outcome either. Always way. comes back so, around to bite you in the butt. Yeah, big time, big time. So, judge was just like, enough. See you later. And off I went. And I. I was actually pretty fortunate. Like a lot of people like, oh, what was prison like? What was it like? And you know, a lot of people have this, this, um, this vision of like, it's a tough place. It's a hard thing. And there's people, people are trying to kill you every night. It's not. It's, it's, if you keep your mouth shut and you focus on yourself, you're fine. No one bothered me while I was inside. No one, no one even said boo to me. It was just, I was there to do my thing, do my time, get out. But I took the opportunity reading up some of the programs they've got in the prison system, going through those programs. I was like, you know, this can help me. This can help me. You know, it was just everything there could help me. And that's when I took the opportunity. I was like, right, I've got four and a half months to rebuild myself. I've got four and a half months to learn what's going on in my head, why I'm making all these silly choices, why I'm making all these incorrect decisions and, and, and really focus on what I can do to pull myself out of this, this rut. Because I was in that rut since 2002. That was all the way from 2002 to 2012. I was in that rut. I didn't even realise it. Ten and years. And it wasn't until I actually went. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to your recovery, which I really want to hear about. How long were you in the States travelling for? Uh, a year and a half I was in the US for. Um, and so, then came back, fixed the bike up. What about your yeah. alcoholism? Still still brutal it was still i'm still like like i said every night just drinking carrying on like some nights it'd just be a six pack other nights would be a full carton you know that was just every night even in the states there's you know everyone just had me as like oh you're the aussie aussies love drinking beer and i was like yep and no one questioned me they just thought it was aussie tradition so no one sort of looked at me sideways while i was in the states but if it was here in Australia, I'm pretty sure like a lot of people would have been like, yeah, you're an alcoholic, mate. You, 
you need help. Yeah. So yeah, I just like from that whole time, like traveling around, just drinking, carrying on like a two bob watch. Um, and what did you do for work? Yeah, it was, How did yeah. you get by? Basically, I just did like I did a few handyman gigs here and there. I did a lot of um, did a lot of security stuff. Like I'm not a I'm not a small guy, so having someone my size at the door was more of a deterrent than anything. So I did a lot of security work at nightclubs and and bars, which was cool. But again, I was in that environment where I could drink. So you know, there'd be times be at the door and I'd I'd be seen triple at some points, just you know, not good. Um, it wasn't until I got to Kansas, uh, like Kansas and Texas is where it sort of got a little bit better for me. I got employed by a, a oil company in Texas and they had me employed and it, obviously you had to do drug and alcohol tests every morning. You had to breed into a bag. So, you know, I was actually watching what I was drinking while I was in Texas, but again, still drinking every night. And then when I was in Clyde, like I said, it was a one horse town, you know, there was a shop, a gas station. You know, the shop and the gas station and the hairdresser were all in the same building. That's that's how small that place was. Yeah. So the farm that I worked on, you know, the rules were no alcohol, no drugs. You're here to work, that's it. And that kind of helped me out a bit. But whenever I had my days off, I'd drive to the next county and stop off at the pub at the next county and just wipe myself out on that on those two days. Yeah. So... Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> so then going into jail, how did you wean yourself off all of it? Yeah, just for about three weeks, I just had the shakes. So I was just constantly like, it's it's almost like, um, how do you put it? Like if you're a smoker, like you're giving up smokes, it's that same withdrawal pattern. You get snaky, you get angry, you know, like you get that, you get the taste too. You're like, oh, mad keen for an alcoholic beverage. But yeah, I just had to grin and bear it because there was no way, shape or form, I was going to get alcohol into prison. So I just had to bear it out. But at the same time, I think my brain was at that point where it was like, I need repairing, man. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you some signs here. I need help. And the best thing about it, like I said, I wasn't set up with other... I had my own um, cell, had my own prison cell. I wasn't sharing it with anyone else. So I didn't have that bad influence either. So I had the cell by myself and then I started looking at like different bits and pieces on how to occupy myself. And, you know, so I started like writing letters and started penning my thoughts down on a piece of paper and it started off one sheet. And then a month later, it's like half a book. And then three months later, it's a, it's a book, you know, and I'm like, wow, I'm just going through, I just wrote everything that I've done wrong and, and sort of, rehash and where I thought I went wrong but you know it's like just what do you call it like a memoir type thing I guess yeah like journal yeah so um, but then obviously the help that I received while I was inside like if I'm pretty sure if I you know if I didn't get that help I probably wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you they were phenomenal in there they first and foremost when I walked in they said look we know you're not a criminal we know you're not, you made some silly, silly mistakes. So you were never treated as a criminal. You were treated as someone who came there to get reformed, to, to, you know, get back on the bike, as they say. And so I spent a lot of time with the counsellors and psychologists and, you know, working through that, that black dog demon thing that bites everyone in the ass, like, you know, after traumatic stuff. But while I'm doing that on that side, there was something else happening on this side, which I, I never expected. Um, so I got, I got a job in the workshop, you know, with other inmates. And there was one young fellow there who was, he was constantly getting picked on. He was getting bullied. You know, he was, he was 19. Um, yes, he brought it on himself, but he was only 19. You know, like when you're 19, you, you're pretty cocky. And well, I ended up just pulling him. Yeah, I've been. Yeah. <laughs> I was one of those kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ended up. Uh, I took him under my wing, and and we worked in the workshop together. So like, I taught him like how engines work. Like, I'm I'm not. I wasn't qualified at that point either. So, but I just I just knew. So I was like, you know, this does this, and that does that, and this goes here. And he's like, oh, I wouldn't mind starting an apprenticeship. I was like, well, you know, how long are you in for? And he said, oh, I've got a year. I said, right, well. 
let's um, let's stay in contact and I'll, I'll see what I can do for you um, down the track. So I thought, and he, he was a good kid. He was a, he was a smart kid. It was just he was just dealt a really shitty hand at the start, and that he just accepted it. He just thought, well, that's it. That's my life. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. So that that felt good, giving that kid a bit of hope. You know, not being that older person and going, oh, you're a drop kick and whatnot. Just being like, hey, man, you're all cool. Like, we'd, we'd sit down and have breakfast in the morning, lunch and bits and pieces during the day. And I was just teaching him how to read. I was, you know, obviously helping him out with bits and pieces that he was struggling with. And it, was, it kind of became like a little brother for me. Um, and then obviously when I was released, um, I had, you know, a pretty sort of set plan in my head. I realized what I had to do. And it was going to be a lot of work. Like it wasn't going to be like a year later, everything was going to be hunky dory. I was looking at like five years of hard work and it was just head down, butt up at that point. Didn't, didn't stop. Um, you got that control back that you liked. Well, I, I got that. I wouldn't say control. I got that stability. I got the stability back. Um, the, I needed that. I need stability. If, if I don't have stability, I'm just going to crumble. So and the way I was taught and the way I was shown was that there's different levels of stability and you can set up what they call the base plate first. That's, that's your fall to plate. And then above that is your standard. And then above that's your, your goal plate. And so your base plate is if the first two fail, you fall back to your base plate. Now my base plate is obviously trade um, mechanical trade. So um, I did um, sort of uphill apprenticeships so recognized prior learning um, I got my trade through the uh, through the prison um, so that was my base plate that was if everything else failed I had something to go back to and that wasn't going to budge because if I can't get a job as a mechanic then something's wrong so that was my ba- that's always been my base plate now above that was the you know my job plate and I was like okay so what do I want to do you know now I'm a mechanic I can do I've got my year 12 I, I passed my TE in year 12 I can go to university. And so 2014, I enlisted uh, into Murdoch University to do um, mechanical engineering and basically just studied my ass off <laughs> the entire time. But because I had that practical sense, that practical knowledge, um, I could apply that practical to theory and, and, and I was moving forward at a rapid pace. And, and at that, I was like, I think by the third year, I was like, I just felt like I was back again. But at the same time, I was like, okay, hang on. I'm in a good position now and now's the time I can start helping people to, to get to where they need to be. And that's when, I, that's when I started coming up with the ideas of like helping other blokes that have gone through similar situations. Now, whether they're veterans, whether they're uh, first responders or nine to fivers, you know, that, that little nudge in the back and that little inspirational is, is going to go a long way with a lot of people. And that's, that's what sort of inspired me to, to push forward get my stuff done and and then help other people especially now working in the mining working in the mining industry and you know you see a lot of that you see a lot of young fellas they come up and they're just like yeah i'm in the money and then they get sacked because there's a recession or you know we don't need the contract anymore and they just fall into a heap you know like i think there's been a few of us in the time where we've lost jobs or we've quit jobs and we've you know we've moved on but these i don't think the skills have been taught in sk- uh, in school on how to you know, move forward with things. Yeah. Yeah. And do you go out to schools to speak to these guys or is it just a community thing, friends of friends? I have been to a couple of schools in the past. Like uh, there was TAFE, uh, for instance. Like I went to a TAFE to have a chat with some students. Blokes have got, blokes have got this mentality of like, ah, oh, she'd be right. Yeah, I know what's going on. They're, they're too proud to, to say there's a problem and they're, they're too proud to go, oh, I don't know what's going on. They just go and do it. And then you just see that that stuff up or something happens and and it goes from like, oh, stuffed up to them getting the piss taken out of them, you know, and it lasts for months, you know, and it, it can really, it can really degrade um, someone's mentality. Um, it's okay to fail. It's about picking yourself up and, and learning from it. With the position that I'm in now, you know, I, I tell my team, don't rag out on the boys, help them out. If they, if you know they don't know what they're doing. Go and show them. Don't don't be that. Oh, look at this guy over here. Go and give him a hand. 
you know, and I, I pretty much drilled that into my, into my team now. Like I've got mechanical fitters, I've got sparkies, you know, and that's the mentality. I, I needed that mentality on the crew because I wanted to have not only just a successful crew, but a crew that worked really well together. You know, and their, their attitude is just, it's awesome. It's that morale, like everyone's happy. Everyone's got like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and if something goes wrong, no one's like, ah, like losing their shit. They're just, all right, well, that's stuffed up. <laughs> Let's start again, you know, and, and it's just that right mentality. Um, it comes with really good leadership. Yeah, yeah, but... You are a really great leader to have that kind of vision and know that you're trying to build that level of culture in your team so everyone's yeah. got each other's back. Got a great team going to Antarctica with you. It's pretty yes. exciting. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm actually really, really looking forward to that. So, it is. Uh, it is the second time I've been down to this region. So we're heading to a place called Obo Station or Oberon Station, which is a research facility for the Australian New Zealand English um, CSIRO. A few projects down there that we've built in the past because of the weather. It's very, very rough weather down there. It's unpredictable. You know, one day the sun's out, the next day it's just snowstorm. So it just, yeah, just depends. So yeah, what an yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, looking experience. really looking forward to that. Yeah, because I can see it in the yeah. way you're, you know, telling your story. I think you've learnt so much and have come so far from it. Final comments from you on anyone who has gone through something similar? Yeah, like anyone that's gone through that bad juju stuff don't don't be afraid to bloody get out and talk about it don't be afraid to open up about it don't bottle it up because if you did what i did you know you bottle it up and it, and it starts coming out in the wrong ways you know you start you know you start making wrong decisions you start making poor choices you start you just things will go wrong if you don't talk um that's that's a, it's a given so if you're if you're a young fella and and or not not just a young fella like you know in your fifties sixties like don't be afraid to to talk to people you know don't be afraid to open up and go hey look I've I've got an issue I don't know how to deal with it and it could be a minor it could be a major it just depends but just be open you know don't be afraid to step up and go hey I've got an issue you know that's you're more of a bloke by doing that than sitting there being all quiet and you know, hiding it because then, like I said, down the track, things will start going wrong because you're making the, the wrong choices and, and saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things. And, and you don't want to get to that point. So, yeah, just be open, just be upfront, just get it off your chest. And, and you'd be amazed at how better you feel when, when you've got mates going, hey, man, I've got your back, whatever you need. You know, once they know what's going on, you'd be very, very surprised at how quick people will be to, uh, to help. It's about that rolling up the sleeves and helping out a fellow, you know, fellow mate. So Australian culture. <laughs> and yeah, you're absolutely right. I think making sure that you reach out to people, family, friends, a psychologist, a counsellor, even if it's paid, it's just worth mm. getting it off your chest rather than stewing on it. I think mental exactly. health, especially this year with COVID, has been so on the forefront of everyone's mind that, yeah. Not having people around and being trapped in your house the entire time, not having company and, or even just seeing people is so important. So, yeah, I can't imagine mm. going through all of that that you went through for 10 years without opening mm. up. It's all about moving forward and, and, and getting to where I want to be in life. And, you know, I'm, I'm still not there yet. I've still got a ways to go. But, you know, I'm at that attitude now where, like, if I want to get something done, I'm going to achieve it. And, yeah, it's, it's a good feeling. And um, are you in a new relationship? Have you been ready for that? Yeah, yeah. I've, 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 so I've been married since 2018. Um, I met my partner in 2015. She probably, she's going to kill me now. Cause I, <laughs> you don't remember? Is <laughs> it 14, 15? Yeah. Uh, but no, Elaine, she's from Germany. So this is, you know, meeting her um, also gave me the incentive to pick up my travels again, um, to go walk about, as I say. She's is perfect now she's definitely my rock so <laughs> so, I'm so happy that after everything that you've gone through you've um yeah rediscovered love and you know found happiness again yeah. and a new purpose in life yeah so we started up an organization called walkabout bros and that's to help veterans first responders and leos um for those that don't know what leos are that's law enforcement officers um especially with everything that's been going on just recently it, it, we're really really focusing on those leos 
obviously a lot of stuff's been happening and, and, you know, there's this defund the police thing coming up now and it's just crazy. And a lot of police officers these days are copping a lot of slack for just doing their job. We created Walkabout Bros so we could help men and women, whether they're military first response or, or Leos, you know, to get out of that, that circle that they get trapped in where it leads to alcoholism, depression, anxiety, PTSD, all that kind of stuff. And we bring them down to Australia and we just take them bush. We take them out to, you know, some of the most epic regions in, in Western Australia and, uh, you know, show them around, let them recharge the batteries, you know, like relight that fuse on them again to, to keep them going. Um, so it's like a retreat. It's, yeah, it's kind of like a retreat, but minus alcohol. There's no alcohol involved with these programs. If you're a smoker, you ain't going to be smoking. You know, it's all about getting back to, you know, your yourself. And uh, that's what walkabout is. You know, um, I don't know if anyone's aware of the indigenous aspects of our, um, here in Australia, a lot of, a lot of the indigenous Australians go walkabout. Um, it's a rite of passage. It's, it's you know, uh, going from a boy to a man type thing. Um, and we've taken that, that program um, and we, we're encouraging, you know, men and women to come down and find themselves, you know, get lost to find yourself. That's a really awesome program, yeah. Ray. Each program is going to be a documentary because um, it's just, everything's different every time. So it's, yeah, it's really exciting stuff and no, looking forward to it. That's awesome. Congratulations. This was hosted by my mum, Linda Crisoglu. Stay tuned for next week's episode of People Are Amazing, the podcast. You're telling your story like you've got, you've absolutely lost, you've dropped all your ego, you've dropped all your big manly macho-ness and yeah, you were really yeah. raw and really honest. I, I, yeah, loved it. Yeah.